Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. This is Politico's Nerdcast. I'm your host, Scott Bland. Coming up this week, Joe Biden has been touting a new plan on the trail that pundits have absolutely trashed, but voters might actually love it. We'll talk about the what and the why in just a few moments. Plus, I'm going to sit down with some of Politico's healthcare reporters to talk about the major anti-abortion bills that are passing through state legislatures all around the country right now. And we're going to talk about where those are heading uh, through the court system as well. Just a heads up, we're taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, May 16th. So it's all up to date as of then. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests. First, Mark Caputo, national political reporter for Politico, based down in sunny Florida. Hi, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And as usual here in the studio, senior politics editor Charlie Matessian, Esquire. Hello, Charlie. (laughs) Hi, Scott. Welcome. All right, on to our first data point, 77%. That is the percentage of Democrats who said in a new CNN poll that they consider this an important factor in picking a 2020 presidential nominee. And and here's here's what they read to folks. It's, is willing to work with Republicans to get things done. Now, let's, let's let that sink in for a second while we turn to former Vice President Joe Biden, who's been on the trail for his 2020 presidential campaign. And he's been facing some criticism from the left about his record and his vision of how to make government work. And uh, here's what he said on the trail uh, earlier this week. Gotten a lot of attention. Um, The thing that will fundamentally change things is with Donald Trump out of the White House. Not a joke. You will see an epiphany occur among many of my Republican friends, Biden said. And it's already beginning. In the House now, you've seen people that, in fact, were not willing to vote for any Democratic initiative, even if they agreed with it. You're seeing that the talk, even the dialogue is changing around that. And so, Mark... uh, I'd like to uh, have you come in here. And what what was the reaction of the, you know, the the, the pundit class, the professional left, you know, the Democratic activists, other campaigns, whatever, to to, to this statement by Biden? It was pretty universal. Well, it was pretty universal condemnation, uh, the kind of sneering intellectualism that, oh, how, how dare he try to pawn this off on us? And I guess that's one of the problems that you'll see on both the right and the left at the extremes where... They really resist anyone who's preaching from this gospel of centrism. And admittedly, the idea that there is going to be some new era or a return to, you know, Tip O'Neill, Reagan-era comedy in Washington might just be comedy. But at the same time, Americans like their myths, and they also like to hear, at least in the Democratic Party, someone preaching the idea of, like, we're going to get things done and we're going to work together. One of Biden's central pitches And one of the fundamental assumptions of his candidacy is that the Democratic Party is not as left as you see on Twitter and as on on Facebook. And in fact, it's composed of a lot of middle of the road people. And polls like this and results such as this lend credence to that idea. Also, other polls, other surveys and other interviews with people lend credence to this because Biden is the front runner and he has not backed away from this concept, from this talking point that we're going to work together, we're going to be able to get Republicans to our, our side, we're going to be bipartisan. The reality is that's a common general election message. 
He just happens to be saying it during a primary. That's in part just an example of the way Biden has successfully run as a general election candidate in this primary and kind of created two primaries, the Biden running or two elections. There's Biden running and then there's the other primary people who are fighting more on the left. That's such a great point, Mark. I, th- I think the thing that's surprising about this poll, though, is that it's, you know, a, 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 it seems like, uh, like, like you said, it's like, yeah, this is a great general election message. The poll suggests this is a great primary message, too, which is just completely at odds with everything we've been told about the, the, the direction and the evolution of the, of the Democrat, or everything we thought we'd been told. Yeah, I think it is until you realize that one of the fundamental motivating factors of Democrats is they want someone who's going to beat Donald Trump. They detest Donald Trump. And a lot of Democrats really dislike Donald Trump because he is iconoclastically kind of shattered traditional norms. And when you have a candidate saying, I'm going to return you to an era of normalcy, and here are the ways, that's deeply attractive to a lot of people. Not deeply attractive to pr- presumably folks who are supporting uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren, a lot of other Democratic uh, presidential candidates, right, Charlie, who um, who were very frustrated by by what they saw, I, I think, uh, during the Obama years, which were also the, the years of Biden's vice presidency, of a kind of um, never requited hope that Republicans were going to come to the table on major legislation on immigration uh, and any number of issues. True. I mean, I, I think that we're also seeing the the disparities between the activist slash political class of the Democratic Party and maybe the broader uh, Democratic base or anyone who considers themselves a Democrat. Yeah, and, yeah sure. Yeah. yeah, and I guess w- w- what I mean by that is, and this is true on the Republican side too, Democrats have controlled the presidency for 16 of the last, what, 27 years, yet there is this victimhood mythology within that party, uh, and the same is true of the Republican Party. Uh, you know, George, even uh, after eight years of George Bush, Republicans were convinced that they were victims and they had been, uh, you know, run over roughshod and they weren't getting anything they wanted, and both parties sort of advanced this, the, the party machinery advances the idea that, uh, you know, both parties have been screwed over and, uh, you know, have been too conciliatory. And so you've got this driving uh, the activists and the political class. You've got the machinery uh, advancing this message all the time. And, and I think you've got Twitter also advancing this all the time. And I think what we're about to learn is, you know, is this just the opinion of the elites or or not? And, and what we see from the polling about about Biden's messages suggests that maybe uh, people are OK with with some uh, conciliation, you know, I, and, and, and that may be true. I mean, I think that his, his message his, his the idea that the Republicans have had an epiphany is kind of ludicrous. They haven't had an epiphany. They're not going to have an epiphany for some time now. Um, but at the same time, I think there there may be an, uh, a larger element in the Democratic Party than we know that does want to see some kind of return to normalcy, maybe not the normalcy that Biden envisions. I mean, I think Biden is you know, uh, in his mind is thinking of a political world that doesn't exist anymore. You know, the idea that people could uh, act in good faith and reach across the aisle, uh, that that world doesn't exist. That world was blown up in D.C. But I do think there are a lot of Democrats, more than we know probably, that would like to see at least a feint in that direction. Um, and, and I think Biden is, is, is going to try to tap into that. Yeah. I think that there were two main thoughts that I had looking at, well, what Biden said the other day, but in, in the context of this poll uh, that we've been talking about. And now what I'm what I'm wondering is what uh, what happens next here is, 
you know, how how do some of the internal contradictions between uh, this stance that we've been talking about and some of the other stances that Democratic voters have about what matters to them in a presidential candidate are going to um, are going to resolve themselves? Holds progressive positions on the issues was another big one. 66% of, of Democrats said that was extremely or very important to them, uh, compared to 77% who said is willing to work with Republicans to get things done. Um, so, you know, what happens when those when those uh, when someone raises the point that that those views could potentially come in conflict, right? That if you hold progressive positions, but if you want to compromise with Republicans, you could potentially betray those positions. I, I think that that's maybe going to be a question that kind of comes up uh, over the course of the debates, and it's going to be fascinating to see how Biden's status as this early frontrunner, like you said, Mark, stands up to that. Well, I think it's always important to remember that poll questions are, while asked within the context of the broader poll, are nevertheless answers and isolations to the questions posed. And there is... You're saying there's room for internal contradiction here. Uh, Yeah, and, and it might not even be that much of a contradiction. I think that there's probably a broad class of people that understand that Washington sucks, that Congress sucks, that they don't really get anything accomplished. So while Democrats want a true progressive to go in there and be progressive, they also want someone to get something done. And just as a politician or political leaders are expected to compromise, negotiate, and make deals, in the voters' own minds, I imagine, there's also that understanding that that happens and that they, too, can compromise a bit on their beliefs as long as something is being done toward a greater good. The important thing, and I think the successful thing for Biden so far, has been this kind of cheery optimism and this, come on, folks, let's get on with it, let's get along. And uh, there is a large class of voters, certainly in the Democratic Party, that wants to see someone say, hey, what you're seeing here is not normal. We're better than this, and it's going to get better. And so far, that's been an effective thing for them. Mm -hmm. Charlie, where do you see that going from, from here? I mean, we've got a long... Primaries. We've got a long pre-primary season ahead of us. Not to mention when the when the primaries actually start. I, I do think that there is uh, something to be said for uh, Biden's happy warrior style, even in this era of uh, toxicity. I think there's still great appeal to it, and it's shown in the polls right now. Now, I would say I, I'm not entirely convinced he ends up as the nominee, uh, despite the the polls and despite you know all how good he looks right now. Uh, I I don't. I'm not sure. I think yeah. that. Um, you know, we still have to see a lot. We have to see how he does in the debates. We have to see, uh, is he going to have a senior moment that suddenly focuses everyone on that? Uh, we did, we see now that the left is beginning to, um, beginning to engage in a way to alert all progressives across the spectrum that, hey, uh, we need to take on Joe Biden. You know, you're starting to see the beginnings of that movement calling Biden out. Having said all that, let's remember, like, his numbers are fantastic right now. They, they haven't shrunk since he got in. They're 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 expanding in, you know, not by enormous numbers, but they're they're very healthy numbers. Like uh, the, the Florida poll that Mark wrote about the other day, Biden has an enormous lead in Florida. The, the Pennsylvania poll that came out uh, yesterday, he has an enormous lead. And what was most interesting about this Pennsylvania poll that came out, and remember, Florida is the essential state for Donald Trump. There is no Trump second term without winning Florida. 
And Pennsylvania is maybe not as important, but it's pretty close. One B. Florida. Yeah, exactly. One B. It's that, you know, uh, industrial rust belt uh, stretch that he that Trump needs to um, replicate his 2016 results in Pennsylvania. There was this fascinating number yesterday among Pennsylvania Democrats when asked who had the best chance of taking down Donald Trump. Sixty one percent said Biden. Six percent said Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. I mean, 61 to six. That is is really telling. Um, and so for all those reasons, you know, I, I tend to think that, um, you know, Biden's message, and I wouldn't say a message of centrism, I think his message uh, may have a lot more resonance than people th originally thought, including me. I didn't think that he'd be able to uh, get past the crime bill and Anita Hill and uh, all sorts of other things. Well, so there's still plenty of time for him to, to, to get tripped <laughs> up on all that stuff uh, as, as we as we well know, um, but there's well, also like the uh, like they say in Ultimate Fighting, there's a million ways to lose. And, uh, <laughs> I, I didn't metaphor. know. I didn't know they said that about Ultimate Fighting. Uh, yes, but thinking on the metaphor of, of pugilism, you know, Mike Tyson said everyone has a plan, and then they get punched in the mouth. And so far, while Biden did have a rocky pre-rollout regarding his handsiness with some women and questions, as Charlie had pointed out about the crime bill and Nita Hill. He really hasn't gotten hit yet. And one of the things from that n news clip you read from, that was from an event in New Hampshire. At that same event, he was asked, Joe Biden was, about criticisms from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez concerning his position on energy and the environment. And his answer was kind of fainting and slow and halting and kind of unsure. It almost looked like he was reading notes. I don't know if he was because he was sitting at a table. But when you see stuff like that, you wonder, okay, how is this guy going to look on the debate stage? How sharp is he going to be? And if he looks like that, you might start to see his numbers drop. Like Charlie, not completely sold, he's going to be the nominee, but it's undeniable that he's looking in great shape right now. Yeah, I think that I think that's a really fair point. I think would you would you bet on him or the field? Maybe the field, but would you bet on him versus any one other candidate? Um, certainly, at this point, like that's where the that's where the numbers are are showing, right? Um, I'm also interested in seeing him one-on-one -on -one against Elizabeth Warren. I think that's going to be a fascinating oh, uh, matchup, uh, in part because, you know, it doesn't get talked about a lot, but his role in the bankruptcy uh, reform bill. like there well, are, They've got there, history like, like oh, no sure. two other candidates. Exactly. Really. The role he played in uh, advancing credit card industry interests as the, as the senator from Delaware. Like, he has not had that kind of uh, kinetic conflict yet. Nobody's taken him on like that. And... Uh, Nobody is better positioned to do it, I think, than Elizabeth Warren. Interesting. Uh, Bernie might do it, uh, but I think Elizabeth Warren would be more effective. So I'm really curious to see how that goes down, and, and we may see that at the end of June. Yeah, at the, in the two debates. Yeah, we'll have to see who gets drawn onto which which night. Right? There's going to be two debates over two nights. Anyway, uh, very very curious to see what happens. That's such a great point, Charlie. I am looking forward to seeing that. Uh, Mark, thank you for for jumping on the line to to join us, and and thank you for your pugilism metaphors. <laughs> Mark, happily, I would have taken you for a professional wrestling fan before anything else. <laughs> I have no answer to that. <laughs> I just doinked the clown from the WWF. Thing, so. All right. Thanks, Mark. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. And Charlie, thank you for coming in as well. Scott, thanks for having me. 
All right, let's dive into our second segment. We are going to transition from talking about federal elections to some new state laws and and potentially some federal court action, I guess, because of those new state laws. Uh, Our data point is 99. Uh, That is the number of years an Alabama doctor could spend in prison for performing an abortion in the state under the uh, new law that was uh, passed just this week, uh, not taking effect for a little while, potentially, you know, could get blocked in, in court, um, presumably for, for even longer. But we have two Politico healthcare reporters here to uh, talk us through what was passed in Alabama and also the, the spate of new anti-abortion legislation that is um, coming up in, in state after state after state in, in recent months. And so uh, first we have uh, Rachna Pradhan. Rachna, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And also in the studio, Alice Miranda Olstein. Hi, Alice. Hello. All right. So this isn't the first uh, a- anti-abortion law we've, we've seen this year. Talk us through broad strokes, kind of a, 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 a quick summary, um, where, we're, where we're seeing this and, and what, what is, is in some of these different laws from state to state. Alice? Yes. So every year you see a lot of red states pushing anti-abortion bills, but there's been a definite uptick since the Supreme Court's makeup has changed. And folks feel that uh, with the two new justices appointed by Trump on the Supreme Court, some of these laws that wouldn't have stood a chance passing um, before now have a chance of being upheld. And so you're seeing states really aggressively passing a bunch of abortion restrictions. And some of the farthest we've seen states going are these um, so-called heartbeat bills, which prohibits abortions after a heartbeat can be detected, which is usually around six weeks. Most women don't even know they're pregnant at that stage. So this week, Alabama went even further. They passed a bill that would ban all abortions entirely, regardless of when in the pregnancy they took place. And they imposed um, the penalty on the abortion doctor that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Rachna, what happens when a law like this is enacted? I mean, usually it doesn't go in, into effect right away. But then also there's there's often very quickly court action that, that follows up with what we've seen in Louisiana and some other states. Right. So typically in the Alabama situation in particular, uh, just off the bat, the law doesn't take effect for six months until after the governor signed it, which she did earlier this week. But of course, we fully expect there's going to be a lawsuit very imminently. And it's almost definitely the case that a court will block this law before it even goes into effect. But the point at which the bill, uh, the bill's backers have already acknowledged is really this is designed to provoke a challenge to Roe versus Wade, um, eventually making its way to the Supreme Court. Um, Alice talked about the spate of anti-abortion laws that have been passing around the country. So six states have uh, enacted six-week bans, which are basically essentially complete bans on abortion also. That's when uh, you ban abortion when a fetal heartbeat can be detected uh, none of those laws are in effect, right? They've already been uh, blocked by courts. And, uh, you know, so so these things are, are really just designed to make their way through the court system to see if we can get a higher court ruling um, to uh, you know, annihilate Roe v. Wade or chip away at it or what have you. So we can, I think we should probably get into what the likelihood maybe that the Supreme Court might do that right away. People have differing theories as to how they might go about uh you know, looking again at the uh, legality of abortion topic. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know, I know that there, there's a there's a, a law that has been stayed and kind of held up in Louisiana for a long while. There's one in Indiana, a bunch of other states that have been kind of sitting, potentially waiting for Supreme Court review. And now, I mean, what I've been thinking while watching all these new ones get passed in state after state is like, are we like barreling toward a like mid 2020 
Supreme Court decision on on abortion, like in the middle of the presidential campaign, which seems like uh, well, it seems like a lot of different things. It seems like the ultimate kind of election curveball. It seems like the ultimate disaster for a Supreme Court institutionalist who like doesn't want the court tied up in politics. There's a lot of stuff going on here. Absolutely. And I think people should remember that while the Supreme Court could take up an abortion case or revisit Roe versus Wade, like you said, in the heat of the 2020 election, it's not going to be one of these bills that just passed this week. The bills that are at the Supreme Court's doorstep, ready to be taken up, were passed years and years ago. One of the main ones was signed by Mike Pence when he was governor of Indiana. And well, that's how about been that? <laughs> sitting before the Supreme Court. And so he, he signed that bill in 2016. It's taken all this time for it to get up to the Supreme Court. The Judiciary can be pretty slow, especially compared to how fast politics works these days. No, I, I guess the, the the difference now at this point, as you alluded to at the beginning of the segment, though, is that um, you have uh, Anthony Kennedy, who was I think he was the author of the opinion in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, right? Which was kind of the one of the the key affirmations, but also like modifying Roe v. Wade. He he retired. He's been replaced by by Brett Kavanaugh, who was appointed by Trump. And and so this, while some of these cases were kind of sitting and waiting, there the the makeup of the court is is different now than when some of those uh, earlier ones started. Uh, which which I think is again at, in in Alabama, you had people outright saying right that, that, that that's part of the point of this is to is to provoke this and try and get get to a place where where there's a big ruling uh, shifting some of the precedent. Right. And maybe one day, I mean, it, it could get there. I should add, you know, we just talked about six states have passed these fetal heartbeat laws. Louisiana is actually about to enact one of its own. And even though that state has a Democratic governor, uh, John Bell Edwards, he's up for re-election this year. Um, he has has indicated he'll sign it. So mm-hmm. well, he campaigned you know. very hard on on uh, being anti-abortion. Yes, yes, he is. From what I've been told, I mean, he's he really is. He's a true believer mm-hmm. in in that. Um, and so, you know, the Supreme Court. I think what's kind of interesting. Obviously, there was so much attention around uh, you know, Justice Kavanaugh for some issues, but also about his uh, stance on uh, abortion. But they haven't taken a case yet, which I think maybe some people have been a little surprised by. Um, they've had an opportunity. They've had two uh, rejections, right, since he's been on the court. And Indiana is just sitting there waiting in the wings, you mm-hmm. know. And so uh, who knows why there might not be – it takes four justices, right, to, to agree to take a case. And, and maybe they haven't gotten that critical mass yet. I'm I'm no Supreme Court expert, but it seems like a lot of the speculation is surrounding Kavanaugh, who's new and and doesn't have much of a track record on this, and then and then Roberts, who has made a lot of statements, public and private, a lot of reporting around like his concern about the role of the court and and whether even on on issues he might agree on, it, it would get too aggressive about overturning precedents. Definitely, and people should remember that. The court does not need to completely overturn Roe versus Wade to severely allow states to restrict abortion across the country. How so? Um, so there's another important Supreme Court precedent at issue um, from a little bit later than Roe versus Wade, which upheld Roe versus Wade, but clarified that states can pass some abortion restrictions, but they can't put an undue burden on women who are seeking an abortion. Now, what's an undue burden? Even currently, under current law, you know, many low-income women have to drive hundreds of miles and pay hundreds of dollars and they have to submit to mandatory counseling that they may not want and they are forced to look at an ultrasound and then they have to wait 48 hours and then go back and so the, those are those are burdens but 
courts have interpreted that some are not undue. And so I think that is an area the Supreme Court could really push on and allow more and more laws and restrictions to go through by arguing that under our interpretation, these are not undue burdens. That's interesting. It seems. I mean, it seems like that a, a um, there there are a bunch of different strategies basically that are that are kind of out there, and and different uh, activist groups, different conservative groups are are kind of deciding which ones they like and which ones they think may, might have the best chance of success of 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 getting to uh, a, a successful court challenge. Is it something uh, a little more incremental like that, or is it something where they're they're really swinging for the fences? Right. And I think if you talk to anti-abortion groups in different states, they have different approaches and different views on that. There are some groups that really take the long game and so won't go out swinging like what you saw in Alabama. They'll do these incremental steps um, to slowly chip away at you know a, a woman's ability to access the procedure um, instead of kind of swinging for the fences, as you said. And I guess it depends what the goal is. The goal might not be to successfully convince a court to uphold a particular law. The, the goal could be to rile up the base and turn out religious voters. Um, mm. So I think that um, uh, along with the split in and disagreements over strategy, there's, a, there's some uh, disagreements about what the goal is. We've spent... Um, most of this time talking about the the Republican push for these laws and 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 some of the the preparations for a court fight on that side. But what what's going on on the on the Democratic side on the left uh, and some of the Planned Parenthood, NARAL, other advocacy groups like that? I, I imagine there is serious consternation. Absolutely, and um, so lots of different groups are fighting all of these laws in the courts as soon as as soon as they're enacted, and. Um, and are, have been successful in blocking all of them uh, so far. Uh, none have been allowed to go into effect. I'm talking about the, the six-week bans in particular. Um, and on the federal level, um, there's been a big effort since Democrats took back the House uh, this year to uh, put forward, you know, sort of proactive um, efforts to um, expand abortion rights. And even though because the Senate is still in Republican hands, those aren't likely to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's really putting out there that this is what the party stands for. We believe that um, women should be able to access this procedure. We're going to put that in in these different laws. Um, and I think you are also seeing on the state level, blue states, both blue and red states are already trying to game out what if the Supreme Court strikes down Roe versus Wade. Mm-hmm. And the blue states are some are trying to put laws into state law or into their state constitutions that say even if Roe versus Wade falls, the right to seek an abortion will still be protected in our state law. All right. Hey, th- thank you so much for, for taking time out of tracking the story to, to come in and talk to us about it. Rachna, thank you. Thank you. And uh, Alice, thank you very much. Great to be here. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in this week. Our producer is Michaela Rodriguez. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like the Nerdcast and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you again next week.